Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hey everyone out there in GI land. This is Nina Nandy, one of your co-hosts of the AGA Small Talks Big Topics Podcast. I am excited to introduce episode two of our interview with Dr. John Carruthers, the current AGA president. We certainly hope you enjoyed episode one. Now in this episode, we're gonna get into some serious career advice and learn about Dr. Crothers' important 80-20 rule in decision-making. But I'm not gonna spill any of the goodies. You'll have to listen to find out more. So John, we've talked a little bit about your role in the AGA and what it's meant in your career. We've talked a little bit of what's a very clear clinical passion for you. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about those other roles you mentioned early on, where you've served as you know, division chair, chair of medicine, the future vice chancellor of the empire, or whatever <laughs> we can call it. So can we just talk a little bit about kind of what you did in those jobs and kind of what that meant to you and what you really loved about those career opportunities? Sure. I have been absolutely blessed to have good mentors who told me things I should do at certain stages of my career and some things that should not do at stages of my career. And usually I would talk to those mentors when an opportunity came up. My first real leadership job as a faculty member was I was asked by the division chief to consider being the fellowship director. Now, there's rules about that. You have to be out five years of training, et cetera, et cetera. I was not out five years ago. I was like year three or four. And I said, well, I can't be. He says, well, I'll be in a name, but you're going to really do it. <laughs> so shh, don't tell the institution <laughs> that I said that. <laughs> I did it for like seven or eight years, and I absolutely loved it. It was my first real foray. I mean, you know, I run a lab. You know, you hire a few people. You run a lab. You, you get people to help do research. You guide that, you know, whatever. When you start taking on these other positions, you're really managing people. And it's your duty to hopefully have their interests at heart, and the focus should be on them instead of you. And that's a hard thing, when, particularly in academics, when it's pushed, like, how do I get promoted? How do I get the next thing? How do you, you know, that's, we're so focused on ourselves, like, how do I get promoted to the next level? Because I, I need so many publications, I need this, I need to do this. But in these other jobs, it's not about, me as perhaps the leader more, it's about everyone else. And so that's something I had to learn. And I think most people hopefully learn that well. <laughs> They're not selfish to themselves. It's more about the other people. And so recruiting fellows, getting them through the program, making sure you're dotting eyes across the team on the regulations from ABIM and ACGME, but really cultivating their career. And I'll tell you, when Later on, when I was division chief, because I still had a special bond with the fellowship program, when I left, that was the hardest group for me to tell I left because I was invested. I felt like their mom or dad and that I was leaving, and it was like the quietest, saddest room you could think of. It was easier to tell my boss and other people, but the fellows, it was the hardest. But I loved doing that, and you know, you hire your fellowship coordinator, and you get into the cycles because there's a lot of cyclic things in there. That gave me some experience. And then someone thought I was doing a good job. And 
I remember Roger Sprague, who was the medical service chief at the VA, came to me and said, nah, I think you should be the section chief for GI at the VA. I said, why me? He goes, I can trust you. <laughs> like, well, where did that come from <laughs> so i thought about it while i asked around and i said well, okay if you want me to do it i'm gonna do it my way and it looks like i was a member i was i had some eights at the va so i part-time at the va and i said if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna try to push some things and he said go to it and so i i worked with the administration to expand our two little closet rooms for endoscopy where we were doing about 800 procedures a year. And within a year, we got the old ICU because they were modeling. We got like four or six rooms and we did 4,000 procedures the next year. Wow. That meant a couple of things. One is I got more space. I got more options for people to do things. I had to hire more people. So, you know, so you start working with the division chief to hire FAC and et cetera, et cetera. And so that was really, 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 really good experience. And then later on, I was asked to be division chief. And by the way, I didn't apply for the fellowship. <laughs> I didn't apply for the <laughs> VA section chief. And actually, I did not apply for the division chief. The chair of medicine thought I did a good job at the VA. So the people do watch you. Hopefully for the right reasons. That's a good lesson for people, yeah. I think. So when I asked, I, I actually he asked me twelve times. I told him no twelve times. Twelve? Yes, twelve times. <laughs> oh my gosh! And so then lucky number thirteen. Time, right? Yeah, it was lucky number thirteen. So what a, he tricked me. So he asked me, and I said no. And he said, "Well, I'm gonna put you on a search committee." I said, "Fine." And so we did a search for eighteen months. I thought I was too young. Ah. And we did a search for eighteen months. Got down to two finalists. And it fell through. And then he came to me and goes, it's almost two years later. Because I said, maybe in a couple of years. And he said, it's almost two years. This was like about 18 months. Then he, he tricked me. I said, I don't know. I don't know. And he, and he said, well, you've been in division how long? At the time, maybe nine or 10 years. And he had me do a, an analysis of the division. You know, one of these, what do we call those? Um, SWAT. SWAT analysis. And so I did it. I wrote an eight-page thing. I remember this. And about, you know, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for the division. Because I had been in the division. I was internal. And I gave it to him. He read it and thought about it. He goes, I like some of this. When do you start? I'm like, wait a minute. I never said I was going to. That was your pitch. <laughs> I said, wait oh, a minute. Amazing. Hold on here. And, and, and he says, well, I'm going to send an email tomorrow. I'm like, no, don't not send. I said, give me a week or two. So this was, he was strong on me. But it was, it was his way of like, I want you, you're going to do it. <laughs> and so I said, let me do one thing. I'm going to go talk to the senior faculty. At the time, I was a latest associate professor. I wasn't full professor. So I went around to the associate and full professors in the division, and I asked them two questions. The first was, since you had seen me grow up in this division from a snotty-nosed kid to, you know, associate professor, could you see me as your chief? And if anyone said no, I was going to tell the chair no. But I don't know if they were desperate. No one said no. I was almost ashamed that no one said no. <laughs> but that was the first question I asked everyone. And then I had a second question. And that was, if there was one thing that you needed or wanted to change, you could only tell me one, and you got to tell me now, in the division, what would that be? 
And I used what people told me for my list with the chair because I, if I was going to do it, I wanted people to believe in me that they weren't just going to kick me up because I was internal. And second, I wanted to give them something, hopefully some early victories to build trust. And at that time, the chair agreed to about 75% of the things I had asked them from that list. And so when I had my first meeting, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for all of you. That's how I got launched. What are some of the examples on that wish list? Some people needed a little bit of money. One person wanted to move their lab. One person wanted to apply for a certain position. But I, I mean, I don't control the outcome of that, but I helped facilitate that. Those are the things I remember off the top of my head. And so I didn't get everything, but I got you know, a good chunk of it. And that's how I launched as a division chief. And I also, I set a vision. And one of the things that's important about some of these higher level things is to set a vision. You can't be a leader if you have no followers. And people have to believe in something, that they're moving towards something. One of the pieces of advice I got from the chair that tricked me into taking that job was, <laughs> he says, John, do you know about the 80-20 rule? I go, okay, tell me about the 80-20 rule. Well, first of all, 80% of the faculty and staff will do the right thing. 20% will maybe push the fringes. And rule number one is you're going to spend 80% of your time on the 20%. <laughs> okay, I said, got that one. That was rule number one. Rule number two is decision-making. If you're the leader of the group, you're going to at some point make a decision. And that should be based on the information you have or information you're going to get. But you can't dilly-dally. So you can't just like say, we're going to make a decision and then you wait 10 months. And you know. <laughs> but he gave me the piece of advice that was really good about that is, let's say, and so the, again, the 80-20 rule. 80% of time, you'll be right with your gut that you're doing the right thing when you make a decision based on the information you have. 20% of time, you'll be wrong. So if you got the followers, because you're the leader, 80% of time, they're rowing in one direction because you guessed right 80% of the time. 20%, you're sending them the wrong way. But as soon as you have more information that you're going the wrong direction, you got to either woman up or man up that you, you got to admit that, oh, sorry, guys, we did wrong and we need to correct course. And most people will correct course because you're open and honest with them. The worst thing is don't make a decision. Because indecision causes everyone to go in different directions. And no one knows what to do. So it's actually sometimes better to give them the wrong, I mean, not on purpose, of course, mm -hmm. as long as it's not life or death situation. But as you get more information, correct that. And it, so that was a really, I thought, a really good piece of advice. And I've always used that. Because sometimes you have information that you know people worked on, and boom, there's the information, and it looks perfect. Other times, you got to make a decision because there's a time, but you don't have every piece of information that you might wish you had. So sometimes you have to make a decision without all the complete picture. And I've kind of lived like that in the roles I've had. I did not apply for the fellowship position. I did not apply for the medical, the section GI chief, and I did not apply for the division chief. In fact, 
I was very happy where I was. And then I didn't even apply for a chair position. The dean of the University of Michigan called me one day. I remember the day, January 4th, 2009, <laughs> right after the holidays. Dr. Crows, I've been following your career. Can you send me your CV? I said, for what? <laughs> we have this job you might want to look at. And that's the only chair job I've ever looked at. And it was because of a call, not because I applied for it. The good news is I had a good reputation out there already for that. And then, you know, on August, around August 10th or 12th of that year, I signed on the dotted line and moved my wife and kids out for at Labor Day to start school. And I started later that fall. And I've been here since then. So that's interesting. And, and it's been a blast. It's absolutely been a blast. But I still take some of those lessons with me, even as chair. So, John, going back, something you said caught me was that you didn't apply for a lot of these things, but you got noticed, right? Essentially, you're doing a good job. You have reputation. So when the opportunity came up, they're like, who can we trust? Who can we look at? And people are like, John. So can you describe in a few words what other people think of you as your reputation? Well, hopefully good. I mean, I can't. <laughs> I know I it's a know tough what... question to get on you, but it's, it's I interesting, know. I think. <laughs> I've always lived my life as trying to do the best. And I, I'm the type of person that, okay, I got the job at hand, whatever, however I got it, and I'm going to try to do the best that I can because that's other people's jobs and lives are at stake as well. And every time I've, I'll say, moved up the ladder to, the, you know, these jobs, there's more people's lives. <laughs> so the decisions get bigger. I mean, when I'm running my lab, I handle three or four people. When I'm running a fellowship, okay, maybe it's like 10 people. I'm running a section chief, maybe it's 15, 20 people. I'm running a division and it's 50, 60, 70. And I'm running a department. I got 930 faculty and 1,200 staff right now and a $420 million flow-through budget that I, I do with every year. And now I'm going to go to this vice chancellor position that's like, it's like four billion and you know twenty thousand employees. And so the decisions and the stakes get bigger. It also gets as you move up the ladder when you have that many more people, it's hard for people to know you as well because you're a few steps removed from their job. So I think it's important to get out. And I've done that as chair. I mean, I can probably recognize about six hundred of the nine hundred plus faculty. COVID slowed that things a little bit down, but... You know at least the top of their head, but not yeah. the waist down. Well, because I, you know, I just gave my state of the department address earlier this week, and I tend to put a lot of people's faces there, try to recognize them. I visit each one of my 13 divisions, so I, I oversee cardiology, GI, hemonc, rheumatology, endocrinology, etc., and I try to get to their faculty meetings, their divisional faculty meetings, at least once a year. So that's an average once a month. We have about 20 clinical sites. I try to get to each one of those sites at least once a year and meet with the leaders at the site. I have quarterly meetings. I do a state of the department address. You know, you cannot communicate enough, but you have to be out there. And You're I like think the that's. Fauci. <laughs> yeah. Every day. Yeah, yeah you have. I, I think you have to be out there to help build that trust, and I've tried to do that at every stage of my career. And it gets harder when you got a lot more people, but it's at a different level. People look to you, you know. 
I always set a vision and I really articulate that vision every year at my state of the department address. I put it in print. You know, we discuss things and we keep that in mind. And these are the things that we're doing based on, you know, our, that vision. And I'll have to do that even when I'm at San Diego as well. Do you know what your vision for San Diego is yet? I'm working on it, <laughs> but I, I got to get on the ground. <laughs> ah, I see. Kind of I know pulse. some things already based on, you know, discussions and through the interviews that are hot topics and, you know, the real questions, how to address those and everything. I mean, there's things I have to do, of course, and there's things that people want to do. And I'll take all that into consideration and, and work with a group. I'm not going to unilaterally say, we must do this. I mean, there's some things we're going to have to do, but I think there's things that are need to be done because of regulations, and that's not really a vision. You just have to comply with those things, otherwise you get fined or whatever. There are things that are aspirational, and that's that should, should go into a vision. There are things that, sometimes those things could be combined. You kill two birds with one stone. One of the things that has come up is that one of the hospitals they own is not going to meet earthquake codes in 2030. So we're going to have to build another hospital. We're going to have to raise money for it and all that, you know, the cost thing. But can we imagine that the hospital, what size is the hospital? Can we expand if we need to expand? What's the cost? I mean, there's financial pieces of that. But can we imagine since we have to build this building, can we utilize it either in the same way or in a different way? Can we really impact the community where this has to be built? Can we do other things around that? So these are, what we'll the I'll have to figure that out. Does this hospital start with an H? Yes. And ends with a crust? That's right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, I was know, there last year. <laughs> That's yes. Why. There's the San Diego. Make the parking ramp bigger. You'll okay. see what I mean when you get there and try to park. I think it needs a new parking structure. <laughs> Honestly, I was so scared my car would fall off the parking thing when I drove up that ramp. But anyways, we digress. <laughs> I, I, I feel like as, as your role as president of the AGA, you're taking politics very locally here, which is always well-received. So that's a that's a good move. For you. <laughs> so John, actually, one thing to build off a of CS's comment, one thing that you said that caught my eye was, right, so... Someone was paying attention to where your career was going, and that's why they were recruiting you into certain roles. So thinking about that, how did you work with your mentees to pay attention to their careers so that you could put them into successful roles as you were stepping forward? How did you reach behind, grab them, and pull them up? And how did you pay attention to that? So that can come from a leadership position. The other way to look at it would be, as a mentee, as a young trainee, as a young faculty member, what are the things they should be doing so that the outside people are paying attention to the good work they're doing? Yeah, that, that's a very good question and a good point. I'm a big believer in try to pay it back, you know, reach back, because someone kept an eye on me at some point in my career for different things. And by the way, mentoring doesn't stop. I still have mentors now. They're just at different levels. <laughs> but mentoring doesn't stop. Absolutely. And I think as one goes through one's career, you might spend 35, 40 years in a career, you're just going to have, early on, it might be this person to help me do endoscopy, the next person help me be a good leader as a fellowship director. 
But, you know, I, I talked to presidents of universities and deans and other things for some of the roles I've looked at and maybe, uh, you know, going into this next role. So mentoring is a lifelong thing, in, in, at least in medicine, in my book. I've trained about 60 people, plus or minus, throughout my career some in the lab, some for career advice. I've had roles as mentor, sponsors, and role models. I mean, the role models, I don't know everyone, but some people have told me I've been a role model. Proof is in the pudding. I remember my mentor in the lab, and he said, John, the next paper this comes out, don't put my name on the paper because you need to become independent. I got enough papers, you need to do it. So I did the same thing with some of my trainings. Like, okay, Enough papers, next paper is yours. Don't put my name on it. Even though I helped you out, don't worry. Put your name on it because then my name's not on it. And the reviewers will say, hey, that's your paper because your mentor's name is not on it. So I've done stuff like that. So the next president, Barbara Jung, she trained in my lab. Oh, wow. The chair of medicine at University of Washington. I remember when she was a postdoc and then a resident at UCSD. And then a fellow, and she wanted to join my lab, and I was kind of young at the time. I said, you sure you want to join me? You want to? She said, nope, I want to join you. And I started on this project of Activin and took off. And I remember getting her KO8 grant, you know, because she went on a research track, and she's had multiple R01s since then. I trained Sherry Wong. I don't know if you knew her. She was in Pete's GI. I remember getting help her get her KO8, and she's one of the – I think Associate Vice Chancellor. She's the, the designated institution official at Rutgers University now. I trained Sonia Rama Murthy, who's still at UCSD. She's a surgeon, wonderful surgeon. She trained in my lab and we published several papers together, and she's a full professor. I think she's one of the surgery, I think colorectal division chief or something like that. I think you have to allow for people to develop independence on one aspect. All of them, I have promoted and helped them network through some of our various meetings, whether it's locally or at national meetings, so they get to know people. That's what my mentors did for me. And those are the same people who will, you might say, hey, I didn't know this person, and they might write a letter for you, or they may be the one reviewing your grant, or they may be the one writing the letter for your appointment or promotion down the line. And in fact, UCSD just sent me a list like, can you name nine potential referees for your appointment as vice chancellor? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so so it's like I threw out nine names in about five minutes, <laughs> you know, because I know a lot of people. And of course, for me, they have to be people that they don't work. I have not worked directly with. They have to be full professors because I'm going for a full professor. So they can't be associate or assistant professors. But I kind of know people in the field and who I know I haven't published with in the last, you know, 10 years or something at least. But that's from networking and knowing people. And that's what I try to do with my certain uh, mentees. What can they do? So a couple of my colleagues here wrote two books, one on mentor malpractice and the other one on mentee malpractice. Oh, wow. And the mentor malpractice is like, you know, you forget the person, you're not letting them develop independence, you're, they're stuck in a corner, you like basically train, uh, teach them, take them like an indentured servant and never let them go. So I've seen that. I've seen that with people get doing postdocs or PhDs and no one lets them go and never, that's crazy. You're not going to develop and you're going to get that reputation as a mentor. Mentee male practice on the, light, on the flip side is, 
are you the go-getter? I mean, if you're getting instructions from your mentor, are you trying to execute them or at least bouncing off maybe a couple other people? Are you ignoring advice? I mean, I've given advice to some people and they just ignored it. And then they're like, why didn't this happen? I said, well, did you do this? No. Well, I can only give advice. I can't force you to do anything. <laughs> so no follow through. Yeah. You know, I still remember one person that was in my lab a long time ago. I had them write a grant. I mean, not a grant, an abstract for a thing. And uh, they dragged their feet and everything. I said, at least get a draft. I want you to write. I'll edit it for you, whatever. And, you know, or, do you want me to write? No, no, I'll write, Dr. Rez. And, of course, the, the day of the abstracts are due. He's like, where's his abstract? You know, I can't wait till the last minute. So, because <laughs> I, I want their input. Because I could write the abstract, no question. But they have to learn. One of the things I do for people in my lab when I have them draft a manuscript, you know, a lot of people go, you know, put it on Microsoft Word and it self-corrects and self-fix. I print it out. I take red or blue ink and I handwrite it. I want them to fix it because that's how they learn. And that's how my mentor did me. I used to get papers bleeding in red ink. I was like, oh my God, there's more red ink than black ink on here. Only if you have good writing. Yeah, well, I had to learn how to write. Uh, Legible, or also <laughs> just kidding. This is the the janitors come into my office here, so just it's getting to let late. You know. It means. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hi. How's it going? <laughs> We're all saying hi. Yeah, they're all saying hi to you because I see you in the background. Oh, hello. <laughs> he says hello. Awesome. We heard. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And so over time, the red mono red ink I got from my mentor dropped that means i was learning hopefully how to write and then you know i still i remember the day i thought i was going to make it because i actually sent off a grant that he didn't see wait how's that okay no no but i i was a junior faculty by then. oh okay but, so you're independent but, but i was still bouncing yeah. a lot of things off him and then yeah, yeah this yeah. one grant he was traveling and i had to send it off and i sent off the grant that he didn't he didn't he didn't actually edit and then, of course, three or four months later, I get my score, and it was weird. It was it was to the state of California, and it said zero. I'm like, what does zero mean? I was like, so I called the agency, and I said, oh, out of 400 grants, you had the top score. It's zero percentile. I was like, what? Ooh. That's never happened to me again. <laughs> that only happens <laughs> once in your career. I guess you didn't need any red marks, or the red marks made you lower score. Just kidding. <laughs> well, well, I was like so happy that like yeah. I figured I I could make it then. And when my and later I, I met my a mentor, I said, I got this score. I didn't know what it meant. I got zero. He says, Oh, let me look at the grant. And then he looked at it. He says, This is a great grant. So, <laughs> so I was like, Okay, I figured I could make it then. But that was after about five years of red ink, too. So, Fair enough. As we're winding down in a moment or two, John, we do want to have you participate in... A rapid fire thing? A rapid... I know okay. I warned you. A rapid fire. So CS and Nina will pop in as well. So quick things. You know, you can pass maybe on one, maybe two. But we'll try not to make them too, too tricky. So first thing, what is the best memory of your fellowship? Wow. <laughs> I would say mentorship. What about, okay, and do you remember your first presentation at DDW? Yes. What is it? It was on my paper that eventually got published in JCI. It was using 5FU 
as a bait where mismatch repair could recognize it. And I was the first one to show that, by the way, and I have about a series of 10 papers since then, which got my claim to fame in the area. I still remember Dennis on and questioning, like, is this true? It's really, it was cool. And I, after the presentation, I said, yes, that's what I found. And other people have found it since then, too. So it's, it's true. <laughs> Another question is, why are you not more stressed than you seem to be? I hide it well. <laughs> for real like you yeah. you each time you say you manage more and more and more people at each step you know like you said a lot of lives depend on you both professionally and personally like why are you so happy and chummy the thing i've also learned and i didn't tell you all the lessons i've learned from my mentors but one other one is surround yourself with good people and so you over time you pick good people that can do things and it takes their success is my success and if if i screw up and hire the wrong person and they screw up, that means that's double work for me because I got to fix their job, do their job, and then possibly get rid of them and find another person. I'd rather have the job open if I'm going to do the job anyway until I put the right person. So one of the lessons learned is surround yourself with good people who are highly capable. And so, you know, I have a good team around me. I'll have to assess all that team when I get out to San Diego, of course, because I don't know everyone there yet. But I've built a good team here. So along the same lines of being laid back, what kind of things do you like to do when you're outside of the hospital? I know your nickname is The Rock. Are you a mild-mannered gastroenterologist by day and a professional wrestler at night? Is that how no. you get the stress out or what, where does that come from? No, The Rock came <laughs> from, uh, from medical school and, and, and no one calls me that today. But Now they will. <laughs> I was known as The Rock because I would, <laughs> I would study and not move for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was known as the Rock, because people would say you're like, still is he sitting still alive. There. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so that's where that came from. Not not because I was professional wrestling or muscle building or anything. I did have a nickname in residency too, and this was one of my residents. I don't even know if I should mention it, but because yeah. <laughs> probably... yes, tell us. <laughs> and I know that someone's from Mass General when they call me this because that's the only place. And it was one of my, one of my residents thought it was cute. And, I, you know, he says, he started calling me, so Cap, like Captain Carruthers. <laughs> I was like, what is this? <laughs> and then so that just stuck while I was there. And then, of course, I moved. And then no one calls me that after. But so every once in a while, I'll be at DDW and someone said, hey, Cap. I'm like, who is that? You know, it has to be someone from Mass, Mass General. So uh, this is before Captain America and all this other stuff. But. You're at the OG. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you had Cap before and you had The Rock before. So you yeah, claimed you a few things. What is the best book you've read, non-medical, in the last, I'll give you three or four years? I did look at uh, Steve Jobs' autobiography by Walter Isaacson. That was a good read. And I'll ask you for That's probably the, one of the last ones I read recently. It's been busy, busy. Yeah. Next one is, what's one thing that people would be surprised to find out about you? Usually they're surprised I'm I'm from a big family. How big? I'm number 10 of 12 kids. That's incredible. That's why the dozen is like an important number for you, maybe. Yeah, maybe. You said like your boss asked you 12 times. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself the black sheep of my family because a lot of my brothers and sisters did 
did very well. And I mean, it was just education was pushed across our family. And even though my parents didn't have the same opportunities we have, but I'm the second doc. There's, you know, four engineers, two oh. teachers, business, computer science, et cetera, et cetera. And you guys can run the world, I guess. The character <laughs> family runs the world. <laughs> Actually, you gave us, that was good. You gave us two things to surprise, big family and also what your family does and also that you think you're the black sheep. Like, what are the rest of us? Like, I don't know, black dust? <laughs> I got to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so being from the live music capital of the world, as far as what the airport oh, says, I want to know town. what's your favorite Favorite music, favorite band? What are you listening to? Okay. I grew up, of course, with Motown, and I used to get my my brother and sister's LPs. I should say 45s, if you guys know what a 45 is. <laughs> I do. My vinyl collection is down the hall. Yep. <laughs> I like jazz. I mean, I, like, I still like Motown and that kind of stuff. And I like stuff from the 70s and 80s. But I also like jazz, more modern jazz. I do like some classic jazz, but modern jazz is my favorite. You know the Thornton Winery, don't you? Out in San Diego, yep. that's a big jazz place. You know, I'll be hitting that spot at some point. <laughs> Do I have a favorite artist right now? I mean, I listen to everything from, you know, people like Dave Koz and Boney James and those kind of things. And some, some of the traditional, you know, a few months ago, I got into some Louis Armstrong, you know, some of his recordings are like almost 100 years old yeah. and they're just what? so unbelievable. The 1923 Weston Blues just Incredible. blows me away every time when I hear that. And it's just like such crisp notes from 1923. It just blows me away. Jazz is my favorite uh, genre. I think we have the soundtrack for the next AGA DW meeting now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take it here, everyone. Scoping, <laughs> scoping soundtrack. <laughs> now that's your entrance music as you get up to do your uh, AGA <laughs> presence day. speech. Um, All right. I also like watch movies. I you know with my daughters. I have four daughters, no sons. So. Oh. That's wonderful. You stopped at four. You didn't go for twelve. Is where you're going. No, I, I if I had twelve, I have twelve daughters. Fair Aww, enough. Thank so, you. Last question for you. No, second you said last. You... I want more. Oh, go for it. I'll let you go first. <laughs> no, yes. you first. Oh, no, you no, sure? No, mine's a closer. Yeah. Ah. Uh, well, what's your motto in life? Motto. I mean, motto, guys. <laughs> like tomato. <laughs> work hard when you're at work and enjoy some time off when you're off. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So last question. You got 800 emails. You said a few were sad. Did you get a personal email from Jim Harbaugh? No. He did not ask you to stay for the Wolverines. <laughs> no, he didn't. But I did get a wonderful email from the dean that hired me. He's not the dean right now. He thought I'd left. I'm leaving a very good legacy. I got people from all over the country once they saw the announcement. The sad ones are coming from Michigan, of course. One of them said, I delayed answering this email because I am so upset that whoever your boss is didn't try to keep you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> Did they try? No, they didn't try to keep you, <laughs> or they well, let you well, fly. Well, this right? is what they wrote. You know, I, uh, I mean, but you know, the, the job I'm taking is not the job. And of course, that's his job here, so I'd have to displace him. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, so I, that's, that's not like, what you meant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. So, John, if people want to learn more about the AGA, if people want to reach out to you directly, can they follow you on Twitter? Are you active on social media? I do not have a personal Twitter account right now. I, <laughs> because I'm a chair of medicine, I, I average about 200 emails a day. 
Oh, wow. And so I haven't gotten on Twitter. Maybe if the emails go down as chan- vice chancellor, I don't know, but <laughs> I might get on here. But we do, I do have a departmental Twitter, and of course, AJ has Twitter, but I don't have a personal Twitter. So other people have been tweeting. Twittering, tweeting, whatever they call tweeting. it. Tweeting. <laughs> tweeting, tweeting on my behalf or some things too. I am very fortunate. This is the actually the second organization I'm president of. Nice. The first one was the Association of American Physicians, which is even older than the AGA. It was founded in 1885. I have a special gavel, a replica of a gavel from the, the actual gavel, because one of the founders was William Osler. There's the get the oh, wow. actual gavel is made of wood from his house where he was born wow. in the Canadian wilderness. Now I had the original gavel when you're president, you get to carry it. And I'll have to tell you this quick story. So you hold it for a year and then you give it to the next president because that's been going on for years, right? Decades. I was taking it, the meeting was in Chicago and I put it in my carry-on and the TSA stopped me and they said, There's a weapon in your bag. I said, It's a gavel. And they pulled it out. I said, listen, I am not leaving <laughs> because that thing is old and it's it's invaluable. So they finally let me take it. And you don't want to be oh. known as that president who lost the gavel to the TSA. <laughs> no, I was not going to leave that thing. So I was kind of glad to get it off to the next president the next year. That's hilarious. But I have a replica of it. So that one is okay. <laughs> How do you use a gravel? Like at meetings, you're like, can start the meeting with it or? Yeah, we don't do it these days. It's it's more symbolic these days. So we, like we don't put a baton, you pass the gravel. Yes, okay. yes. Yeah. But that one, I don't know if I want to hit because if nope. I break it, no. <laughs> that's like doom for your presence, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's like stepping on a crack in the, ice, the sidewalk. That's high risk, low reward right there. Yeah. Yeah. So the replica I can do that on because that's not that's not the real one. But and the AJ is shipping me a gavel too. So, but it's just a plain gavel. There's nothing on it. So, just a new modern gavel. So maybe you should start this like heirloom legacy of the gra- gravel gavel with your presidency and yeah, start passing maybe. it and make it special, right? <laughs> yeah. Some wood I from like your that. house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to take a brick off, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Pass the brick. <laughs> Got to be original with the AGA. Well, 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 we're in GI. We can do pass other things <laughs> oh my goodness i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> no, no, no don't let your mind go too deep but <laughs> we'll leave imagination leave it to yes. the re- uh, audience's imagination <laughs> so with that i think we're really really glad that we got a t- chance to talk to you john as the president of the hga that's coming and honestly this has been really wonderful talking to you We want to thank you for your time. We know you're super busy and for spending time with us. It's been great. You're more chill than I thought you'd be. Oh, well, thank you. I'm that's that's grown up in a big family. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much and have a great night. So nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJ Whitson MD, at Nina Nandy MD, and at CSC MD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.